listening to the Mary Louise O'Donnell podcast. I'm joined today by Angela Edgehill. Angela is the Advocacy Manager for the Irish Hospice Foundation. And Angela, I have to tell you that you are one of my greatest teachers in the Senate. Um, And you were that because you said to me one evening over a conversation that dying death and bereavement in Ireland, of which you are extremely familiar as the Advocacy Manager, it was really less to do with the Department of Health and more to do politically with a lot of other departments. And I was very surprised by that. And that was the start of our relationship, learning around dying death and bereavement in Ireland. Tell me about that, Angela, um, because there is, a, there is a belief that dying death and bereavement has to do with the Department of Health. Now, you taught me that it hasn't. Tell me how you learned that. Yeah, you, thank you for the opportunity to do this for a start. I, I, I agree that I think that dying is everybody's business. We are mortal, all of us. We're all going to die. So we have to deal with that, not just in the health sense, in that we have to deal with the illness or the outcome that leads to the death of ourselves or of somebody that we love and care about. But we deal with dying, death and bereavement in our normal lives. So we deal with it as parents, we deal with it as children, we deal with it as teachers, we deal with it as guardie, we deal with it as civil servants, we deal with it as anybody interacting with anybody else in the world, in our normal lives. I don't mean globally in the world, but I mean in our world. Because when we are bereaved, we don't stop being the parent or the teacher or the guard or the bus driver or the manager or the street sweeper we live with that in our lives and we interact daily with everybody else in a changed world for us because we are bereaved and equally with dying Yes, the health service takes the greatest strain. Of course it does. We, you know, we look to the health service to help us, to mind us, to make us better, to stop us dying, effectively. But when it comes to the stage that we are dying, we can't just handle, ha- wrap it all up and hand it over to the health service and say, there you go, you deal with that and it will make it better. Because when we come out from that hospital as the bereaved, We have to interact in a world that's got nothing to do with the hospital or the doctor's surgery or the healthcare um, system generally. And we have to live our own lives in our own homes, in our own ways with that. And equally when people are dying, they do. 90% of of the care of people who are dying happens in the community, not in hospitals. This was a very interesting um, uh, education for me because I had forgotten that um, being ill, terminally ill or dying involved travel and it involved food and it involved electricity and it involved warmth and as you say services and and the arts mm-hmm. and conversation. I, I had forgotten all of those things and that each political department was as important 
to play a part in somebody's leave-taking um, their life ebbing away from them or being under palliative care or living well until they die but that was as important as the medical end of things. You're right and that's why your two reports on finite lives, the number one which looks at the state as an employer and how that affects people's bereavement experience for the civil servants but your second one, finite lives too, which looked at how the state as an entity deals with dying, death and bereavement for its citizens are groundbreaking and really interesting and seminal pieces of work. And you see through that when you, I know that when you went to talk to the government departments, they all said, oh, nothing to do with us, mm. nothing to do mm. with us. Does that mean every government department is full of immortal people who never meet <laughs> anybody mortal? It's fascinating. You, you're, you're right. You have to go and get a death certificate. That's the biggest bureaucratic full stop when you go and get a death certificate. That means you're with the Department of, uh, what's it called now, Employment Affairs and Social Protection. You may have to apply for a pension or a disability pension. That's the same department. You may have somebody who has died or is dying abroad, Department of Foreign Affairs. You may have to look for transport. You may have to look for other things, education, talking to children, mm. how, you know, talking to the teachers. All of these are our general daily lives and that's why your work was so important in identifying the role that each government department has in our dying. I get the impression, Angela, working for the Irish Hospice Foundation that you, you, you have a great ease around the area of dying and death and bereavement. Most people well, who might not have experienced it yet or might have experienced aspects of it will shy away from it. They're not very good at bringing language to it or even speaking about it in a living way. Mm. That's for something over there in a dark place. Mm. And we really shouldn't be speaking about it in such a vibrant, heartbeat way. You seem to amalgamate death and living into, into one force. Am I right about that? Possibly. I'm just used, I'm more used to speaking about it, but yeah. my experience was, because this wasn't always uh, what I worked with, but my experience was that whenever I appeared anywhere with my Irish Hospice Foundation hat on, people would come over and start talking to me about their most recent bereavement. And I realised that grief is our common ground, that really all we need on occasions is not a whole plethora of services and people running in with counselling and anything like that. What we need is sometimes just space and time to talk. And I used to go back to the office and say to my wonderful colleagues who are skilled in bereavement, people told me all of this and I didn't know what to say. And they would say to me, and what did you do? And I'd say, well, I listened. I said, that's what you need to do. So sometimes, talking about dying, death and bereavement, we all speak about it from the end, end of bereavement, unless we are dying ourselves, unless we know we are terminally ill. Sometimes that space is really sacred in the way that it's just safe. You can go and talk. It gives you permission to talk about it. And that's what's important, I think. And sometimes the healing takes place right there. All you wanted to do was acknowledge that acknowledge that you have loved someone who is dead and that you miss them. What do we in Ireland do right and what do you think 
a good death might look like or a if there's such a thing as a good bereavement and there is mm -hmm. uh, there has to be that people can move on with their lives what do we do right because I know we do funerals well and we're very ritualistic about that and we're very reverent about it and we're kind of dramatic about it as well and we're also artistic about it um, but what do we do well and what could we do better and what do you think that good would feel and look like in this whole area, that this, this island would be a good place from which to leave. Mm. It's interesting that you say, what does good look like? Good looks different for everybody. And you're right, we do do funerals very well. People turn up, they do their, you know, they offer their condolences and they take the whole thing very seriously. And that's lovely, because that is public acknowledgement of somebody's huge grief. The other bit about what does good look like, the Irish Hospice Foundation in 2016 asked people, what worries you about it? What worries you when you think about dying and death? What concerns you about grief? What would you like to see in bereavement? And one of the things, ironically, that people said, people said that they were frightened of dying in pain. So a good death maybe is pain free that they wanted to be assured that the services would be there for them to help them and their loved ones cope with illness, but that they wanted death to be talked about and not hidden away. So let's not cross the street if we see our friend who has been told they've only got X time to live. Let's get back to the rallying round when death was integral part of life, when people lived at home and died at home. Now that's not to say that, a good, that a, de a good death is not possible in a hospital, of course it is, and sometimes it is absolutely the, the most appropriate place to be, but that we would watch each other and support each other. So it's that collegiality around death and dying that is really important. And the kindness of strangers, the random chat with somebody is sometimes all people need. Of course you must have important services, of course there must be bereavement services as well. But if you look at the model which says that most of us will manage our own bereavement, we won't get over it, but we will manage to live with it if we get the support of our peers, of our community, if, if our employers for instance know that we're going through that that people the civil servants who spoke at you in your first report spoke very eloquently about that about the importance of people accepting that you are in a different and very painful place and they help that and that is enormously enormously healing so maybe part of that is that conversation but the other thing that people told us was that they wanted their wishes respected, they wanted dignity and choice, that they wanted to be able to say what they want. So that's the other thing, not just making a will, which is about things, but writing down about what you want. Just go back to that, um, what people said to you, did that come in the form of a research charter or sure. uh, what was that about? Well, in, in 2016, the government said, um, because it was the centenary in 2016, that we had to remember, reflect and reimagine. So we remembered, reflected and reimagined death. And we sent out a questionnaire with five open questions, not multiple choice, but open questions, asking people to speak about what worried them, what concerned them, what worried them most about dying, death and bereavement. And we were hoping for about 500 responses and we got over 3,000 responses and the rich data that comes there because people wrote paragraphs, 
you know, people wrote essays about what they were concerned about. And they also wrote the truth. They did. And they wrote it in the privacy of their own homes. They wrote it on in hard copy. They did it on the web, whatever they did. They told us what their deepest fears were. And it was anonymous, of course. So we have distilled all of that information into what we call the People's Charter on Dying Death and Bereavement in Ireland. And it looks at all of those issues, the death, people say they want to live and die in an island where death is talked about and not hidden away, where there are services to help them cope with worries and distress, where they know that, they're, uh, look, that they would like to die at home. Now, some of them say they'd like to die at home with, with ICU in the kitchen, <laughs> but they would like to die at home. But a lot of people say, but I wouldn't want my family to have to do all that social care. So the whole idea of home care, palliative care in the community, really important to people that they would have their wishes respected so that means some method of actually saying what your wishes are having those really really important conversations with your family and letting them know and the other thing they said was that they wanted to be treated with dignity and after they were dead they wanted to know that their family that people would understand grief and give it time and that they wanted them to they wanted to know that their family and friends would be looked after now that could be looked after both in emotional terms but it could also be in financial terms it could be in physical terms so what people said was we would like it if we had good health services we would like it if we had good social services we'd like an opportunity to talk about what we want and to record our wishes and we'd also like an opportunity to talk about bereavement when we are bereaved to be with people who understand us um one of the other things uh that i learned during this report um was that we're very bad at planning ahead and um, that the average irish person there's only 32 percent of us i think that's actually made a will but in some way we are frightened by it and and i'm one of those uh, visual aids um, did that come up or have you, do you feel that we're not doing enough to attend that um, in relation to wills or people's needs for what happens after they have gone or especially now since you know you might have terminal illness but it doesn't mean you're going to die tomorrow that you have plenty of time and to live well as I said until um, you die. So was there, was there areas there that, that, that came up or that you feel that we need to work on? Yes, and this is a recurring theme actually in what people say to us about dying and death. The uh, National Council on the Forum on End of Life went around the country in 2009 and asked people what they would want and one of the things that came up, people said I'd like somewhere where I could write down my wishes and as you know the Think Ahead programme was born from that and Think Ahead is a simple form that looks at legal, financial, and care information that people might wish to write down and keep in a safe place and certainly share with their doctor, share with their lawyers, share with their bankers, but most, most, most importantly, share with their family and friends and those close to them. As appropriate, obviously, you don't want to be giving all your information to everybody, but that people then get on with the business of living. Making a will does not make you die. So it's all about writing down wills are about things think ahead is about you what do you want look at your care preferences it's not an exam you don't have to fill it all in but if you are able to think about things in a structured way and that's what the form does brilliantly and since the form 
it was piloted and it went through various manifestations. There are 85, more than 85,000 of those forms around the country now. And one of my wonderful colleagues is out doing, in, in County Clare, for instance, a whole series of talks called Putting the House in Order, which is really cleverly funded by the Community Foundation, but also by the Older Persons Council in Clare. And she is going all around County Clare and people are coming and they're learning about enduring power of attorney and how to make a will and think ahead. And it is hugely important. Now, how do I not know about that governmentally? Do you think that should be part of the Taoiseach's office or something, or part of social welfare, um, sort of protect, social protection, or part of education? I, I, I know this because I have researched this, but maybe the average person doesn't, doesn't know about this uh, Think Ahead form. We, we have been looking. You're, you're right about that. We, we don't expect the government to say, oh, you're a genius, give me that and we'll roll mm. it out. But what we would like the government to do is to enable support and encourage people to think ahead. So the government has a role here, and actually Taoiseach's office, the former Taoiseach Enda Kenny was very strong on this, was part of the Think Ahead programme the whole way through, and in fact on the day he launched your report, he said, he re-endorsed the idea of Think Ahead. So the government has a role in enabling people. They talk about your workplace pension, they talk about doing things in advance, they talk about planning for your children and all. Think Ahead is very much an integral part of that, not just with older people, but at every age and stage. Every age and stage of life, we should be thinking about this. Is it legal? If I was to get a Think Ahead form and was to sign it, and these were my wishes and, and my, all my life and my assets and whatever else is in it, I'm sure there's diff different sections in, in the, I know there's different sections in it, but is it legal? Under the law currently, an advanced healthcare directive, which some people call a living will, an advanced healthcare directive is currently legal under common law. So there is no legislation underpinning it, which is commenced at the moment. Now, having said that, here's the technical bit. The Assisted Decision Making Capacity Act of 2015, part eight of that act contains a section which legislatively underpins advanced healthcare directives. Unfortunately, this hasn't yet been commenced, but we are hopeful that in the next year or so it will be. In the Think Ahead form, there is a valid form under the Act for making an advanced healthcare directive. It must be signed, it must be witnessed. It is legal. Mm -hmm. And that is the only part of the Think Ahead form that is legal. If you say, well, I don't want this to happen to me. And, and, an advanced healthcare directive is, is, says what you don't want to happen. The important bit about all of this is, it is only in the event that you have lost the capacity to speak for yourself. So if you're sitting up in the bed drinking tea and toast, they're not going to come along and say, oh, hold on a minute, you said you didn't want this, off you go, you're dead. It is only if you are unable to make your wishes clear. So that's the important bit about it. And sometimes you may not want to go down the line of doing a, a legal um, advanced healthcare directive, but if you have a conversation with your GP or the doctors who look after you, but most importantly, most importantly, tell your family. Um, you know a lot about this area. Does it does it frighten you? Do, you know, because when people don't like to talk about death, I don't like to talk about it myself. I'm too terrified of it. Um, I, as the fellow says, who said it? I don't want to be there when it happens. Um, Woody Allen. Woody Allen. <laughs> um, 
I, it doesn't seem to frighten you at all. You seem to be very at one with what you're talking about. Is it? Yeah, perhaps. I, I just, I am inspired by the work I do. I feel hugely, hugely privileged to do this work. And I feel that the organisation for which I work has a real and wonderful mandate. And, the, you know, their, their, their vision is that no one would face death or bereavement without the care and support they need. And that doesn't mean everybody has a hospital, but everybody has the support that they need, the place, the space, the place, the opportunity, the information to deal with it. You can't make it all right. We are going to die. It is not a happy thing to do. But I think once you've accepted your own mortality, we should live as mortals, not live as if we're immortal. Mm. And I think that the whole idea is that we can do it better as a society. Yes, tell me, uh, tell me about one aspect of it that we are not doing well. Now, as opposed to an emotional or empathetic um, mm. aspect of it, tell me something politically that we might not be doing well and that we could be doing better tomorrow if we were listening as you did in relation to the Charter. Okay, uh, one thing that is really interesting is the idea of bereavement, that people want to be acknowledged as bereaved. So some years ago, we used to have a bereavement grant. It was the one time in all of the support that the, the state offered, it was the one thing that had the word bereavement in it. Now, it wasn't a very good grant and it didn't necessarily give the right people the, the right support at the right time. And the state finished up the bereavement grant. So they abolished the bereavement grant and they replaced it with the exceptional needs payment. Now, when you're bereaved, you don't want to be told you have exceptional needs. You want to be acknowledged as bereaved. So not great social intelligence. That having been said, people do get support from the state, financial support. But we're not sure whether the people who really need it are getting it, whether it's properly financed, whether it's pr not properly financed, whether it's properly, properly focused and targeted. And effectively, we should be looking at what supports we need. We need a socioeconomic, a really good socioeconomic research on what is the cost of dying, death and bereavement. Mm -hmm. Economically, socially, emotionally, in terms of employment, it has huge effects. If people have unresolved grief issues, often they will have mental health difficulties. Afterwards, it's recognised mm -hmm. and off, I, I really don't like the, the, the term for this, but prolonged grief disorder is now in the, um, is now recognised as one of the classification of diseases. So there you go. You just need to get in at the bottom. Yeah, well, Do you it know, right. one of the things that came across to me was the cost of funerals. I mean, the cost of funerals is prohibitive for families. And I do know that one of the things that came out of the report was the amount of borrowing that some families do to pay for a funeral because it's the last way of actually heralding a husband, a child, or whatever, and they were going to do it well, if not greatly. Mm. And the costs are huge. Mm. And they borrow from lenders, and then there's a payback. And I mean, I would think that's something that that, that would you agree that that would be would. something that the government could kind of put some con controls sure. on? Sure. I think people are hugely challenged, and often hugely challenged, particularly if the sudden death. 
people haven't planned for this it suddenly happened you're suddenly met with all of this where do you get the money from you watch the the uk tv at the moment and there are myriad um, adverts particularly during the day focused at people like myself the over 50s funeral plan it's not just about taking out insurance for your funeral it's about saying does this need to cost this much? Mm. Uh, the cost of a the cost of a grave, for instance, in Dublin is massively is massively expensive because of the cost of land. So we're all affected by this, mm. and yes, it is something that we should look at. Both ourselves, we have a hardship fund, and people will ring up and say, you know, I'm having trouble meeting the cost of of a funeral. Equally, most of our most of our hardship fund goes on that. Equally, the Department of uh, Social Protection, I think they said they spent four million on uh, supporting people with funeral mm. costs there's something wrong with that but there is nothing wrong with people wanting to do as you have said the very best for the person who has died another thing that i learned and i learned it when my father died that we were standing there in the hall and he had been in the hospice and extremely well looked after in the hospice and we were all big well grown up overfed traveled supposedly educated smart people and we stood in the hall the four of us and we hadn't a clue what to do Absolutely. with all our education we hadn't a clue what to do we didn't know who we knew we had to get a funeral director mm -hmm. but we had no sense of we hadn't planned we hadn't thought we hadn't given any thought to it now we buried him well in the west of ireland and we were extremely well dealt with but we were lucky because we had we all put our money together to bury daddy well but i can understand how people who are not as and this were <laughs> we were supposed to know what we were doing and we were silenced by it yeah. so it comes around the corner and kind of clips you off doesn't it and even if you're expecting it even if you're expecting it i know in the case of my own mother we knew that she was dying when that physical parting comes, it shocks you, and you are a different person. It removed. I felt half my brain was removed. You sort of wander around in a fog, and at the worst time of your life, you have to do the most bureaucratic things, which is bizarre. So, it's about finding. The government could do wonderful things, like, and you mentioned it in your report, the Tell Us One service, where you make one phone call to a designated number, be that the Department of Employment and Social Protection or the Revenue Commissioners or whoever, and they then undertake to tell every other government department that you have had a bereavement, that somebody is dead, and you won't then get the hospital appointments for them six months after they have died, and you won't get things from the HSE asking them about their medical card, or you won't get something from the Television Licence Bureau. So in other words, it just helped, wouldn't it be great if you could just make one phone call and it was all done? Because you find yourself wandering around saying, oh, what do we do next? And you don't, you're not able for it because you're already, in the, you know, the, the, the axis of your world has shifted and you're not 100% and it doesn't matter how many of us there are you will always find one and it causes terrible conflict in families as well. What can the average person uh, do better for a bereaved person or what can uh, the average person do better for a person with a life-limiting illness? Now, many of the things I was talking about in the report were the physicality mm. of departments mm -hmm. and the rules and regulations and the formulas and how we could change those and policies and move things on for people and a lot of them are financial as you say. Mm. But what can people do? I mean, we are an empathetic people, or are we? Or have 
have we lost that um, or have you found that it's it's re reigniting you know with our great moneyed moment and then our crash that there's something about well it's far more significant now that we are one-to-one -one with mm -hmm. each other mm -hmm. when we are frail and when we need help what can the average person do are, and are they doing it and is it happening within education that people are learning what they can do the young people are learning what they can do or education is teaching teachers how they can help families or children what to do I think it's more difficult for younger people now because we're in the age of social media so you send you know the appropriate emoticon on your you know you put it up on the Facebook page or you whatsapp it or you do whatever Instagram and all that stuff or you tweet and it reduces it to and you feel you've done your job and maybe you have because maybe that's all you need to do but what we can do is listen give each other time and space I read a beautiful poem one day where it talked about going into going into this space which was hallowed by grief and your job as the congregation of one is to take off your shoes and sit at the back and listen so listen when people want to talk to you just listen because sometimes that's all people want but equally do recognize that we are all going to be or have been bereaved and just give people time and space but equally practical help like if you your neighbor is um, being bereaved don't go around and say oh what can I do just say I've done this or I've you know turned up with the casserole or look after the kids or take the dog for a walk or do whatever you want to do but equally recognize all of us I think as a state as a people we want to do the right thing and we shouldn't be frightened of doing the right thing we shouldn't ever be frightened so be there for people recognize that we all have we all are mortal grief is our common ground and let us just try and do it better in the future if we can I can't let you go without telling a secret about you when you were at university you were a brilliant uh, policy uh, administrative and policy director uh, on the university um, students union and led one of the greatest protests to Margate against Margaret Thatcher on Thatcher Thatcher Milk, Milk Thatcher <laughs> and then came into politics worked in politics as as a chief administrator writer thinker formula director um, program manager I mean you the whole gambit here in Leinster House and then I, I, and are now with the Irish Hospice Foundation do you think that all those experiences now are of great use to you as you marry a certain kind of empathy of our final leave taking with all the policies we have around mm. living do you, do you understand what I mean that yeah. one was more formulaic and now the one is totally from the heart as you say the hallowed mm. ground mm. of the fragile heart mm. do you think that you found the perfect kind of center to yourself maybe I've always been as you know well I've always been a bit of a zealot when it comes to thing I'm a bit idealistic about it I mean you once described me as uh, standing on street corners shouting at politicians you're all going to die <laughs> and there is a bit of that about me from my student days as well you know the, the Thatcher Thatcher Milk Snatcher we used to be on I think it was in London more than I was ever in, in Nottingham but anyway uh, on, pr on protests 
But I think with all of it, it is, I think, and it's in us all, the desire that things would be better and that if you can facilitate that for even one person, that you would take that opportunity. And I think that that's what the Irish Hospice Foundation does as well, is that you try and make a difference to every one person you meet. You won't make things better. People are still dead. But you try not to add insult to injury. You try and say, yes, they mattered, you matter, we cared, it was more dignified. And I love that. It's hugely, hugely privileged work to do this because you meet people who share with you the most beautiful, painful, awful, dreadful, sometimes uplifting moments of their lives. And the ones who have pain which was caused by things that could have been better the desire is to make that better so yeah there is a bit of that and of course I'm also winding down a bit now I'm you know I'm in that over 65 bracket now so it's awful when you get a drop down list you're no longer allowed to put a date in you just have 65 plus which is really scary um, so yes probably that's part of it too but it's hugely privileged and enormously satisfying well it's a privilege to have had the time with you and even though I'm not very fond of death I know that if you're around, I'll be in good hands. <laughs> Thanks, Mary Louise, that's great. You're listening to the Mary Louise O'Donnell podcast.